What a blessing to be with God's people, to look at each other and see the faces of Christ's holy ones, Christ's blood-bought saints. It is always a joy to gather and sing these praises to God, and I hope that you're enjoying transitioning to these, these classic Christmas songs that we're singing. Some of them are new, some of them are written more recently, but all of them just directing us like a laser beam towards the gospel of Christ, towards the coming of Christ, towards uh, this baby in a manger who would grow up and die for our sins, according to the scriptures, who would be buried and be raised again to give us eternal life. So we praise God to get to meditate on these things in that precise kind of way at this time of year. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 14. Romans 14, uh, today, verses 13 to 23. I'm going to take on a little bit of a larger section today. There's quite a bit of repetition in this chapter, and the same themes being sort of applied in different ways. And so we're going to take on verses 13 to 23. We are in the last major teaching section of Romans. Uh, and this section runs from 14, verse 1, to 15, verse 13. And it is the last great discourse, you could say, of the Apostle Paul before we get to the kind of end matter, the stuff at the end where he is discussing his apostolic ministry, discussing his itinerary, and then giving that very extended greeting and list of names that you find in chapter 16 and then ending in a doxology. So lots of, lots of really great material there we'll see when we come to it after chapter 15, verse 13. But this is where we're at now. This is the last large chunk of teaching that the Apostle Paul gives in this uh, greatest letter, you could say, ever written. The most famous letter uh, in the world. In the history of the church, Romans has stood out as a book used by God in, in very powerful ways in the life of his people. The theme of this section is welcoming one another. We see that at the very beginning, and then we see that towards the end of the, of the larger section. Welcoming one another, not judging one another, due to differences in opinion. And so you have these differences within the church, and there is the temptation not to welcome one another and instead to judge one another. And so Paul is attacking that. He is trying to prevent that sort of thing from happening. But it's not just preventative. It does seem to be, in Romans, corrective. It does seem to be directed at a, a uh, particular controversy or some sort of issue going on in the church. Now, it does seem, uh, in light of the rest of the letter, to be fairly mild, uh, not some sort of uh, pronounced issue like we find in Corinth or in uh, Galatia. But nonetheless, it seems to be a problem among these house churches in Rome. And so that's the reason Paul spends so much time here dealing with it. The opinions in this section that are dealt with have to do with Old Testament ceremonial observances. So just imagine transitioning from the Old Testament period to the New Testament period, the coming of Christ, and those who are coming to Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. Eating and drinking, only what is kosher or prepared according to the Mosaic law, and observing certain days in accordance with the Jewish calendar. These are the sorts of practices and positions and issues that are at play in this chunk of Romans. The problem is that there are two kinds of Christians in Rome. One, those who are conscientious about these things, food and drink and days. So that's the first category, those who are conscientious about these things. They refrain from eating meat and drinking wine. They observe special days. And once again, this has to do with their, their Old Testament Jewish background. And then the second category of folks in Rome are those who believe they can eat or drink anything and who see all days alike. So uh, no particular day or set of days is, are special, uh, but every day is the same. Every day is alike in Christ. The first group is called by the apostle the weak, not in a derogatory way, but just in a 
what the truth is kind of way. Uh, Paul is labeling them according to the truth of the situation. Not in order that, and this is what our sinful hearts do with these sorts of things, not in order that the Christians in Rome might then take up that label and begin applying that to people and beating other people with the label weak, but in order that Paul might delineate between these two people in light of gospel truth. So the first group is called the weak in faith because they have yet to work out the full implications of the gospel for these ceremonial laws. They're having trouble moving beyond these laws. They have failed to see that they are now free from these observances. And it's important to see, it's not as though they're they're connected to these observances as a means of salvation, as I said before, but rather that they just see these as part and parcel of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ, the Jewish Messiah. The second group is called the strong because they recognize that in Christ Jesus, all foods are clean and all days are alike. So this is the group with full Christian freedom and liberty intact, the strong. Paul has told his readers that they should, as I said before, welcome one another. The strong should not look down on the weak. That was their great temptation. And the weak should not judge the strong. Instead, each one should live unto the Lord with a clear conscience. That's where we ended last week. Every Christian has this responsibility. To live before Christ with a clear conscience. We'll talk a little bit more about that this morning. But I want want to just ask you that today. Do you have a clear conscience before the Lord? Doing only those things that your conscience allows you to do. Have a clear conscience before our king who purchased us with his blood. He owns us. We belong and live unto him. And instead of judging one another, Christians should recognize that each person will stand before God. He is the judge. We are not. Sometimes we uh, decide to get in the driver's seat, the, the judgment seat, of over our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul is attacking that. He's saying, look, God is the judge. Every person will stand before him. Let God do his job. And don't try to take over God's job in judging your brother and sister in Christ. So today, that was a lot of what we looked at last week. Today we come to a larger section that focuses on the strong. How should the strong relate to the weak? You could say that much of what he said so far was focused on the weak because of the emphasis on not judging, uh, standing over and making a judgment on those who would do these things, who would not observe certain days or who would eat freely the meat sold in the meat market. But now Paul transitions from his focus towards the weak, addressing the weak. Now he is focused in on the strong. How should they relate to the weak? How should they think about their freedoms in relation to the weak? And notice that. They should not think about their freedoms in and of themselves as as detached from others. But they should always think about their freedoms in relation to the weak, their brothers and sisters in Christ. So how should they think about these freedoms? And the answer is they should do what they can to protect their fellow Christian from stumbling. That's the big idea here in this portion, protecting their fellow Christian from stumbling, from being offended in his or her conscience. And so you'll see the title up here on this screen. The title for the sermon this morning is Guarding Against Stumbling. You remember Cain in the book of Genesis chapter 4, right after the fall, we get that that really clear picture of the effect that sin had on the world. And there, Adam and Eve's first two children, one murdered by the other. When God comes to Cain, he says, am I my brother's keeper in a sarcastic way to the Lord? I'm not my brother's keeper. And I think Paul's message to us 
this morning is the, the opposite of that, that we are, in fact, playing a role as our brother's keeper, our brother's protector. Not our brother or sister's judge, in that sense of being a keeper, but a protector guarding against their stumbling. Before we read our passage here in a moment, let me say a quick thing about implications or applications for us. Now, we always want to go back to the scriptures and study them in context. We always want to understand what is there. We don't want to race to application and then skip over what God has revealed to us in space and time in his word. But we do want to to ask the question, what in the world does this mean for me? I mean, we're not just here for a history lesson. We're not just here for some sort of cultural analysis of first century Jewish and Gentile relations, some academic lecture on how it worked back then. We want to understand what God is saying to us, his people, today through his word that was written centuries and centuries ago. So let me just say a quick thing about this with respect to this passage. We have to be careful not to over-apply Romans 14 and 15. You can put all sorts of issues and opinions and everything, just cram them into Romans 14 and 15. We have to be careful not to do that. This was a unique situation where Christians were coming out of Judaism. Paul has particular issues and opinions in mind. You could put a one-to-one kind of correspondence if, for example, an Orthodox Jew were to come to Christ, say, in Israel as part of a Messianic a Jewish community, and you had these sorts of issues going on there. This may, this may directly apply to the specific issues in view for that Jewish convert. But there is a unique situation going on here. Paul has particular issues and opinions in mind. And so it's important that we stick close to that and not get out here in la-la land putting all of these other opinions and issues into this text and seeing this text as speaking to all of that. But at the same time, we recognize that the principles we've seen also apply to us today, of course. And so I just want to give you four of them. And this is, this is by way of review, but also it leads us into our passage for today. Four great principles that we can apply to ourselves very much today. So first, there will be, these aren't the sermon points, by the way. This is just to kind of help us understand how all of this applies to us. I'm going to go through these quickly. Uh, this is not a little mini-sermon. So, number one, there will be many opinions in the church that should not be grounds for disunity. Let me say that again. There will be many opinions in the church. You can apply this to different things. Typically, it gets applied to drinking alcohol. Uh, There are many different things that you can apply this to, but there will be many opinions in the church that should not be grounds for disunity. And let me say this. This is really important even where gospel implications are involved. Even where gospel implications are involved. How do we know that? Because gospel implications are all over this passage. Uh, These are big gospel implications. Uh, Does a a Jewish convert or a a Gentile God-fearer who came out of that to Christianity have to keep these certain things. Well, in their own consciences, they think they do, not in order to be saved, but in order to be faithful Christians. It would be very tempting for the strong in Romans 14 and 15 to think, man, this is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. This has to be confronted. But that's not what the apostle does. That's not the approach the apostle takes. Even where gospel implications are involved, there will be many opinions in the church that are not grounds for disunity. Now, there will be opinions that are grounds for disunity. We see that as denominations split, conservative, Bible-believing, Christ-focused, virgin-birth-believing evangelical Christians have to part ways with mainline Protestants or those who uh, do not accept the authority of God's word or who embrace the LGBTQ movement, which is clearly taught in Scripture as being against God's truth and his created 
order and against the gospel. But there are many opinions where disunity is not called for. A second implication is we should welcome one another not to quarrel over opinions. We're not embracing one another, hugging them. Hey, brother, let me set you right. Okay, we're not thinking along those lines as Christians within a local church, or for that matter, as Christians within the universal church. We're welcoming one another because we genuinely love one another because the life of God is in that person. They bear the image of God and they belong to Jesus Christ. We're not about quarreling. Are you a quarrelsome person? Looking for a fight. You like the debate, you like the sparring. We should not pursue that kind of Christian life. Third, we should avoid judging one another because that is God's job. And as I said that before, uh, we have to check ourselves on that. There, is, there will be a tendency to stand over one another and we have to check ourselves against that and say, I'm not going down that path. The Lord will take care of them and the Lord will take care of me. And number four, All that we do should be done unto the Lord with thanksgiving, with a clear conscience, and in recognition that we will one day stand before God and give an account for that choice, that action, that decision, that preference, that position, that issue, whatever it is. We're going to give an account to the Lord. This is really a a great template for living the Christian life. I mean, just this, this point alone, this is what it means to live unto God. This is what it means to present your your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we fulfill God's will. This is what it means to do that. This is how we do it practically in everyday life. So hopefully that just situates us a little bit, helps us see that we don't want to over import into this text, but we do want to extract from it what God is teaching us and apply that to our hearts today. And I think that those are four really clear implications for us. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read Starting at the beginning of chapter 14, we'll read up to the end, verse 23. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Receive it with faith and reverence. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. That includes your knee and mine. Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, this is where our passage begins for today. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. Let's pray for God's blessing over this time of teaching and that God would help me to to teach clearly and help all of us to listen with our ears and our hearts and our minds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this time together to sing your praises, to pray to you, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, God, to hear preaching, to, to sit under your word. Father, we thank you that you've called us together as a local church. We thank you that you've called your people out of the world to belong to your church, universal, all over the world. We have brothers and sisters down the street right now worshiping you and in other places all over the world on every continent. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for them. We pray for those who are suffering. Uh, We pray for those who are being persecuted. We ask your, your blessing, your protection over them. We pray that we would be a means in your hand of blessing to them. Father, we thank you for the great blessing that many of them are experiencing as they are, are seeing you uphold them, as they are experiencing uh, the joy of uh, suffering for the name of Christ. Father, we thank you that you have called us all to belong to this one great church. And Lord, here at Four Corners, we praise you that we, we have time like this together. And we ask for unity. We ask for love to increase. We ask that you would help us to really take in the words from Romans 14 and 15 and apply them to our hearts, Lord, that we would not continue down a path of uh, being quarrelsome or being judgmental or grieving our own consciences or trampling the consciences of our brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to be doers of this word even today as we sit under this teaching and as we leave here this morning. Uh, We pray your blessings over this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said before, Paul's focus here is on the strong. He wants them to guard against causing their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. And this involves three things for the strong. These are going to be our sermon points this morning. Three things for the strong to cultivate, to recognize, if they are to treat the weak rightly in the context of the church. So here they are. (coughs) First, sensitivity. And we're going to see that in verses 13 to 16. Secondly, single-mindedness, verses 17 to 19. And then finally, self-denial in verses 20 to 23. Uh, This text really is a lot of these overlap with one another, uh, but they do, I think, offer in these various scriptural chunks, they do offer these three emphases. And so that's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. So first, sensitivity. And for that, we're going to go to verses 13 to 16. So go there with me. Verses 13 to 16. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So as is always the case at the end of the day, the big flashing word here is love. And not the sentimental, zapped of all depth kind of love that we hear about in our culture, but deep biblical love. That is the big word in this section. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. These strong Christians who are rightly persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself are being called to love their weak brothers and sisters, those who do think that certain things are unclean. So you've got the strong, they don't think anything is unclean, but they are called to love these weaker brothers and sisters who actually do think that certain things are unclean. Instead of judging them, which in this case would be despising them, they are to love them enough to decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in their way, as Paul introduces uh, the first verse, verse 13. They are to decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in their way. After all, these are not just other people. We know how we are to treat all people, all people made in God's image. But we're not here just talking about the treatment of other people. They are people for whom Christ died. Paul makes that Explicit. They are God's people. They are Christ's very own precious possession. They are blood-bought saints of God, sheep in Christ's fold, members of Christ's body, part of Christ's bride. That's who other Christians are. So before we tear down one another, before we speak against one another, before we carelessly do things that would harm one another. We need to get that clearly in view because that's what Paul does. He wants to put right there on the front burner the fact that these are people for whom Christ died. And in these verses, this love that we are to have for these people for whom Christ died, this love involves sensitivity. Being sensitive to the consciences of others. Being thoughtful, being mindful of what's going on on the inside of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is attentiveness. This is sensitivity. If Christ loved them enough to die for them, which he did, then we should certainly love them enough to be sensitive to their consciences, to be attentive to their consciences. Whoa, what a small thing, right? So where do we see this sensitivity in these verses? Well, as Paul explains it, we are to be sensitive to how our brother is thinking on particular issues. Verse 14, you see the language there. You can look in your Bibles there, the language of thinking. Whether, whether or not he is grieved in his conscience by our conduct, you see that in verse 15, his, his being grieved, what's going on on the inside, what he's feeling, and how he is speaking about the things we are doing. Verse 16, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So we're actually attentive to what the other person is thinking and feeling and saying. Do you see that? In other words, we can't simply exercise our freedom without regard for how it is perceived by our brothers and sisters in Christ. It matters what they think about what you're doing. Let me say that again. It matters what your brothers and sisters in Christ think and feel about what you are doing. You know, we are tempted to not think this way very much in our individualistic 
culture, you might be tempted to think otherwise. It really doesn't care what other people, or I really shouldn't care what other people think. It really doesn't matter what other people think because I am free to do this. That is exactly what Paul is not saying in this passage. So here's the thing. Here's my, my prayer for you. If that's where you're at, here's my hope for you is that you will let this passage wreck you in that way that you will be under God's word when it comes to the exercise of your own freedom. That you will let your freedom and your individualism be governed and corrected by God's holy word, by the apostolic teaching. Remember at the beginning of Acts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, guess what? This is the apostles' teaching. It is the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles. So don't think that way. Don't think this way. Well, it really doesn't matter what they think. So in our sensitivity towards our fellow Christians, what are we trying to guard against? That's where Paul goes with a lot of his language in this larger passage. What are we trying to guard against in being sensitive to what's going on on the inside of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, several words are used here to convey that danger. Stumbling block, hindrance, grieved, and destroy. The word destroy, let's just focus in on that word for a moment. Uh, And it means destroy. The word destroy tells us that the effect on our brother and sister can be spiritually devastating. And scholars and commentators debate on the the extent to which destruction and apostasy are in view, that that this leads to apostasy, the, the walking away from the faith of those who claim to be Christians but are not, or whether this is just kind of spiritual Uh, destruction, uh, destruction of one's own discipleship or spiritual life or spiritual vitality. But, But regardless of that, what we can at least say, at the very least, is that this word destroy tells us that this effect is devastating on our brother or sister in Christ. We're not talking about small things. We're not talking about little effects. What's probably going on in the background here is twofold. Some who are weak are merely offended and they're stirred up to judgment and it creates controversy and it causes disunity within the body. So some may be grieved simply in that they are just offended. But more importantly, and I think more of what Paul is getting at here, is that others are becoming grieved in their own consciences because they are being led to act against conscience due to pressure from the strong. There goes the strong marching out, celebrating his freedoms, partaking of his freedoms, and the the weak person is, is either pressured or encouraged, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, encouraged or pressured to do likewise. And there they are, they hop right in the, in the herd, they hop right in line, and they begin to partake But for them, there is a conscience saying, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Not good. Not right. And they do it anyway. And their conscience is grieved. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 10 describes, you can go look at that later if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 10 describes a similar scenario, although there, Uh, It's, uh, I think, a little bit of a different issue. Gentiles eating meat sacrificed to idols. Yes, all foods are clean. But for the person who thinks it unclean, guess what? It is unclean. It is unclean. There is the objective truth that it is not unclean. But there is also the subjective conscience-tied truth in their own life, in their own experience, that it is unclean. Because in their conscience, they believe it to be unclean. Now this is not some, you know, 
postmodern sort of what is your truth and what is my truth and all that. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about uh, two layers of reality here. We're talking about the reality of what one understands to be right, what one understands to be true, which in this case, for this person, it's unclean. But in truth, it's not unclean. Both of these levels of reality matter for the apostle. Both of these levels of reality are meaningful. For them, it is unclean. And in acting against their own conscience, they are acting against what they understand to be the will of God. This is why it's sinful. This is why they're grieved, is because they are doing something that they consciously, on the inside, truly believe to be against the Lord. They truly believe that it does not please God. They truly believe that it is not the will of God for them to do it, and yet they do it anyway. That is a serious problem. The effect is that they are headed down the road of a guilty conscience, and to use Paul's language here, spiritual ruin. It's pretty serious. And in this case, love means that Christians would care enough, be attentive enough, not to let this happen. This is what we're against happening. This is what we're fighting. This is what we're guarding against, protecting against. We don't want this to happen for any of our brothers and sisters in Christ. They would decide, uh, they would decide instead never to do anything that would cause this to happen. That's what Paul is calling Christians to do. So let's move on now to the second aspect of Uh, the strong's behavior and attitude towards the weak. So first we see their sensitivity. They're attentive to what's going on in the hearts and in the lives of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're sensitive to that and they correct accordingly their own behavior. But secondly, we see single-mindedness. Look at verses 17 to 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Here we have the theological heart of this section. We don't want our freedom in Christ to be spoken evil of because that twists the truth. We really are free in Christ. So why would we invite and stir up blasphemies? That's the the verb here. Why would we stir up speaking against, that's all the word blasphemy means, speaking against this great freedom that we have? So we don't want to do that, and we don't want our freedom in Christ to become the issue either. We don't want this to become our pursuit We wake up every morning and go, I'm free in Christ. What shall I do today in my freedom? That's what the Christian life is about. I shall live out and enjoy my freedom. No, that's not what the Christian life is about. That's what Paul is speaking against here. Why? Why do we not want this freedom-driven kind of Christian life? Well, because Christianity is not about your own personal liberty. That's not what Christianity is about. It's about the kingdom of God. That's what your life is about. That's what my life is about. That's why this church exists. That's why any church exists. It is about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self, not the preference of self, not the fulfillment and enjoyment of self or the expression of Self. It's not about whether we can or can't eat or drink, whether we can or can't technically do something that we want to do. This kingdom is to be our single-minded focus. Every day, every hour, we are consumed with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Here, Paul gives a short definition of the kingdom. Verse 17 It is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom is about. And particularly, Paul will hone in on this word peace, which he'll repeat 
uh, in a little bit, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is life in the Spirit. It is life and power that comes in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, only through Christ and the Spirit whom he gives. That's the only way we have this life. And let me say this to you this morning, if you're here and you're not a believer, you're here with a family member, you're not a Christian, uh, this is the meaning of life. So whatever you think the meaning of life is, it's, it's a deception, it's a lie. If you're pursuing anything else in your life, you are being duped. You're being deceived. The evil one has darkened your mind, darkened your eyes, so that you cannot see what life is really about. And like a beast in the field, you will just sort of graze your way right to the end of life, right into an eternal hell. This is the meaning of life. There is no other meaning to life. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You wanna celebrate Christmas this year? That's how you do it. Because that's why Christ came. That's what Christ came to bring, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We already know that we have righteousness, peace, and joy before God. We know that from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. You remember when we were there. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there's the righteousness, justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's peace. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's joy. So do you see that? Righteousness and peace and joy. To be in Christ is to have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you're not in Christ, you don't have righteousness, peace, and joy. You don't have those things. You don't have those things objectively, forensically, before God, and you don't have those things experientially. You might be happy because you're in a good mood or something nice just happened to you or you drank too much coffee or whatever else, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about deep righteousness, peace, and joy, overflowing towards the living God who himself lives within us. This is the call to become a Christian is the call to this. But just because we have these things, Christian, doesn't mean that we always demonstrate them. Now, we know that. Just because we have them doesn't mean we always express them. For the strong, well, let me say this first. So Paul is here calling his readers to focus on what Christianity is all about and to demonstrate what Christianity is all about with our lives. So for the strong, it's not about your rights. It's not about that. How much, time, how much attention do you give to that? That's not what Christianity is about. For the weak, it's not about your trivial observances. How much time do you give to that? Some of these individuals in the church in Rome, so tedious and focused on these little things, they're, they're so down in the weeds with these little things as though they're still Jews, not Christians. These little trivialities. Some of us here are like that, just so committed to our little trivial observances or little, little trivial things, that, that that becomes for us what Christianity is about. It is about that thing and righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. They just drift away. They're back here. They're out of sight like a balloon going up into the sky because it's this thing that I'm focused on right now, this thing that I take so seriously. That's what it's all about. No, that's not what it's about. And the same is true for the strong. It's not about what you can do. And when we live like this, when we live this kingdom-focused way of life, we are serving Christ in this way with the result that we find in verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ 
is acceptable to God and approved by men. On this path, we do the will of God. You want to do the will of God? This is the path. On this path, we avoid unnecessarily offending our brother or sister. Do you care whether you even offend your brother or sister? On this path, we are both pleasing to God and above reproach with our fellow Christians. When the kingdom of God is the focus, when we are not getting tripped up by all these opinions and issues, we will pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That's where Paul goes in verse 19. Peace and mutual upbuilding. In other words, where righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit are the focus, there will be further growth in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When we focus on those things, guess what? The body of Christ is built up in those very things. Mutual upbuilding. That's what we care about. That's what we are single-minded about. And I want you to see this. This mindset, this mindset that most of us would probably say that we have in theory, in theory, but in practice, maybe we lack, this mindset destroys selfishness. You say to yourself, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm a selfish person. I think I really struggle with selfishness, with individualism. Well, fighting that starts here because you can't live this kind of life and continue to harbor selfishness, being self-absorbed. This shatters selfishness and individualism within the church. And individualism is a plague of modern society. It's a, it's a, a plague in American society. And so it's, it's gonna be a plague in any local church in this cultural context. So we have to be attentive to it. Awake, sleeper. Like Paul calls us to at the end of, of Romans 13, we have to awake to this. We have to be aware that, that this is an underlying blind spot for us. And listen to the apostles' teaching here. Finally, we're gonna look at this morning self-denial. That's the third aspect of this Approach to the, to the weak that the strong need to have as the apostle calls them to here and calls us to as we seek to apply this text which is very much bound to a, a cultural moment but which has many implications for us today as we seek to apply this. Uh, it, we, we understand this third point to be a part of our way of living and that is self-denial. So first, sensitivity. Second, single-mindedness. And finally, self-denial. For this, let's look at verses 20 to 23 as we finish up. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The message of these verses is simple. Deny yourself. Deny yourself in an effort to protect and build up your brother and sister in Christ. Whoa, 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 whoa. Deny yourself, once again, a popular idea among Christians, in theory, right? Self-denial, nice. Feels really good when we're not doing it. Feels really good when we're just thinking about it. Feels really good in theory, not so much when it meets everyday Practice. Deny yourself in an effort to protect and build up your brother or sister in Christ. Verse 21 gets to the heart of it. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's good not to do any of those things. If they cause your brother to, to stumble, don't do them. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 
verse 13 basically says the same thing. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. You see the emphasis there, how emphatic Paul is? If that happens, if food calls my brother, I'm not even touching that food. I'm not even going near that food. I'm not even going to smell that food. I'm not even going to think about it. I will never eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. That's the bottom line. It is better for you to give up some Christian liberty or some Christian right than for you to cause others to stumble. It is not better for you to practice Christian liberty than for you to protect your brother from stumbling. It's the other way around. It is better for you to guard the stumbling of the weakest of your brother or sisters in Christ than for you to exercise rightly and justly, your freedom, your rights before God. It is better for you to give something up, to deny yourself, than for you to destroy, literally tear down the work of God. So I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I building or tearing down? Am I building or tearing down? You know, we're gonna stand before Christ. We're gonna give an account to Christ for every instance in which we tear down. Are we building or are we tearing down? Remember, the church is God's building. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Who in the world... A believing Jew in the Old Testament would have, would have, would have gone into the, to the temple in a way that was not prescribed even more. Who would have gone to the temple with a chisel or something else and started just breaking the temple apart? Unthinkable. That's exactly what we do. Christians, when we don't do what it is that Paul is calling us here to do, we are we are quite literally, within the context of the church, we are tearing down, we are, we are serving the purpose, Satan's purpose, of tearing down what God is building up. And every Christian, so the church as a whole, but every Christian is God's unique workmanship. We know that from Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As verse 22 tells us, our faith towards God, our confidence in the implications of the gospel for our lives, our gospel freedom is a good thing. So let me make that clear. Paul wants to uphold that. He wants to say, this is wonderful, isn't it? That's why that category is called the strong. Paul says he himself is part of that category. It is something in which we are blessed. We see that in verse 22. It is a blessing to exercise this freedom without condemnation from our conscience. But this freedom, this blessing, is not to be rubbed in the face of those who do not enjoy the same freedom. How many Christians make that error? It is not to be rubbed in the face of those who do not enjoy that freedom. Instead, Paul says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Keep your mouth shut about it. Keep it between yourself and God in prayer. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, don't publicize it or parade it before your fellow Christians. Maintain it and exercise it privately before God or with those whom you know are likewise strong and will not be grieved in their consciences. Yes, such a person is blessed because he has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But what about the other believers? You may, in your doing, have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for what you approve. But what about your brother or sister in Christ? What about other believers who, through your carelessness, 
are led to act in such a way that they do have reason to pass judgment on themselves for what they approve. May it never be. Paul elaborates on that outcome in verse 23. But whoever has doubts, this is the last verse of our passage, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It is this outcome that Paul is calling the Christians in Rome to guard against. That's the outcome that Christians don't want to see for any fellow believer. Partaking while doubting, acting against conscience, not doing what we do in faith towards God, doing something and not feeling confident in our own consciences before God that what we are doing is okay and right and we're doing it with thanksgiving unto him as praise. The outcome of not doing this, the outcome of partaking while doubting is sin. You say, oh, no big deal. We all sin. Oh, that's a very false way to understand the gravity, weightiness of sin in the Bible. That thing on account of which Christ died, that thing that will send people to eternal torment, that thing that has corrupted the entire world and led to untold suffering, and above all, that thing that is the greatest offense to the glory of the majestic and eternal God. Oh yeah, that thing, sin. That's where this is headed. That's the outcome for our brother and sister in Christ. An outcome which we should never want to happen. One final note here. Notice this last sentence. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You know, I, I think this is a really helpful verse because it helps us make sense of the moral unbeliever. We all know people who say, man, that's just a good person. You know, we've even recently been talking with our kids a little bit about this. We, we have some, some people in our lives that really are just good people. They're not believers, but they're good people from sort of a, a world standpoint. They, they do nice things for people. They, they rarely say things that are unkind. They, they just seem to be really moral people. What do we do with these moral unbelievers? They, they always make us a, a little bit confused, you know, because the Bible is telling us that those who aren't believers are darkness and those who aren't believers are, uh, have no hope. They're without God in the world, that they are on their way to hell, that they are rebel sinners against God. And then we meet somebody and we say, I mean, I'm just not seeing it. I'm just not seeing it. What do we do with these folks? Well, they may do good deeds, but there is no faith towards God. And therein lies the greatest problem. Where that is the case, we are left with Romans 121. And this is so significant. Where there is not faith towards God, we are left with Romans 121. No matter how good the person appears... What's going on in the heart, God sees. And Romans 1.21 describes it well. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do not be deceived. Every so-called good person you know can be described by Romans 1.21 if they don't know Jesus. If they are not a Christian, if they have never been born again, Romans 1.21 defines their heart. And so, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let me give you a fitting summary from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 to 33, and I'll just conclude with these verses. This is a, a good parallel passage to what we're looking at here in Romans. This is what Paul says there. So whether you eat or drink, same sort of context, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now, isn't it funny? I, I want you to sit, I don't ever want you to cite that verse. I don't ever want you to quote that verse again without thinking of everything we've talked about today. Because it is in that context that those words are mentioned. So you may have that verse memorized. Whether we eat or whether we drink, we do all for the glory of God. And, and it's just totally dangling out there in midair. Right? I want you to root it 
Root it in Romans 14 and 15. Root it in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 because that's where it belongs. It belongs in how we treat one another, the way we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Two words here, glory and saved. This kind of life is a life that promotes the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. This is the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage within your word. We thank you, God, that you correct us and guide us with it. Lord, I pray that what has been taught here this morning would edify this local church, Lord, that it would build up what you are building and not tear down. Father, we pray that our actions, all of our actions, would not tear down, but they would build up. And that we would truly see the weightiness of sin. That we would not want our brother to, or sister to go down a road of destruction. And that we would govern our own personal freedoms, which are indeed wonderful blessings. But that those things would be governed by this principle of love. And that we would never think to elevate our freedoms over our love. Father, we pray for your grace in this. We pray that you would bless this time in the Lord's Supper. We thank you for our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen.